It's about, I think we always kind of just do this. We want to hear about how, you, how the Lord saved you. You know, a little about, you know, in, in that concept, let me, me a bit about yourself and then how it saved you. Oh, um, yeah, we might have time for the other story. All okay, right. So, <laughs> so just so say that for later. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, I grew up in Chinese Christian schools. Some of you guys know that. I heard I saw a hand away from that. Any okay. CCSers? No CCS CCSers? Former? All right. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. So there's some of you guys that know this place. Uh, so when I was there, they introduced me to, to Jesus. And, um, you know, they just told me that if you say a prayer, you, you'll be saved. Um, but I didn't really understand what that meant. I said the prayer because I didn't want to go to hell. Um, but uh, my conception of hell as a third grader was basically being in school forever. So I was like, okay, if I, if I just say this prayer, then I get to go home. I don't have to worry about this. Um, but my life and my profession were totally opposite. Uh, I called myself a Christian, but my life was, you know, not, uh, a, you know, didn't, I lived like a non-believer. And it wasn't until maybe four or five years in, uh, I think around middle school, was when I got really convicted of sin. And it came about when the school called my mom, and they're like, hey, your son did something bad again. And I was like, yeah, okay, I did that. And um, my mom said, you know, if this is what Christianity is about, then I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And that's, that rocked my world because it was true. Like, yeah, I, I know what the Bible has to say, and I know that my life is opposite of what the Bible teaches. And that was when the Lord really convicted me of my own sin. And from there, I repented, and I, and I gave my life to the Lord. And that's around, like, high school. High school years. All right, great. Uh, so from there, high school to where you became, where you, you know, answered God's call to be a pastor, how did that take come, come to play? How did that happen? Yeah, so I was serving, this was in college, I was, I was serving at Grace Community Church, and one of my college pastors there, uh, you know, I was just serving with him, and uh, I did not know that you could get paid to be a pastor, and he was like, hey, uh, you should do this for a living. He's like, why? And um, at first I said no, because I didn't. It was such a high calling for me. It was, it was, you know, I had such high regard for Pastor John and everyone at Grace Community Church. And to be in the same type of, I guess, work that they're in, the line of work, it scared me and startled me. So I was like Jonah. I just fled, and I didn't want to have any. I was like, no, I'm not, I don't have to listen to my college pastor. And like all things, when you disobey, there's uh, consequences. And uh, the Lord just place different trials in my life, um, and I think that really got my attention of how much I needed to learn God's word to shepherd people and to and pour and basically teach people God's word. Um, in my own life, there were a lot of just people in my life that fell away from the faith, so it meant, it meant that I need to teach and warn people of, of the wrath that is to come, and I wanted to be equipped to, to do that. Okay, very good. Oh, that's fast, dude. Um, Next question is, what are some of the, as a, you've been part of Grace Community Church, you've been in seminary, what are some of the ministries that you've been involved in there at the church, and what kind of things have you, catch, uh, the Lord's allowed you to do? Yeah, I currently serve in the outreach department, so I work with uh, missionaries. Some of you guys have uh, Raymond Choi, you guys know Raymond Choi and Jim Ayers, so I work with them, actually. Uh, we send STMs over. If I recall last year, you guys sent a team to, to Raymond Choi and helping him with the conference. I'm the one that's bought all the tickets for the Grace Community Church people. Uh, so that's just the international outreach part. I also do, do local outreach where I serve um, uh, with a, I just serve at a drug and rehab, uh, alcohol drug and rehab uh, place. And uh, I preach there once a month and I oversee all the administrations there. And I'm also part of the college ministry and young adults Bible study. 
which college ministry is that? Uh, UCLA. Okay, UCLA. Okay. Yeah. So, right. Any UCLA Bruins? GOCers? No, I don't think there's any here. <laughs> no? <laughs> oh, sarcasm <I> noted. <laughs> yeah, uh, they might be. There's a few. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> few. yeah Chris G was here. Like, to, yeah. Was it a year ago? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's your shepherd? Yeah, he's my yeah. turn my so. shepherd. So yeah, many of those who came to our retreat last year, Pastor Christie, our retreat speaker, uh, was his shepherd. Is his shepherd? Yeah, yeah. Is, is well, one of his shepherds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Great church is big. So. Okay. Uh, well, t- uh, let me tell you. Let me now ask you more. Probably things more closer to your heart. Uh, let me tell you. Tell us about a little about your, you know, any your significant other who you, came, <laughs> who you brought here with, with us today, and and then tell us. Uh, well, yeah. Introduce first. So my wife is Kelly. Uh, she's sitting right here in the front. Let's go <laughs> Kelly. Uh, so we met when I was serving at uh, I was serving at another college Bible study, uh, Cal State University Northridge CSUN. I was serving there for six years, and then at the time, a college pastor, a different one, uh, he texted me and said, "Hey, uh, God's will for your life is to go to UCLA." And two days later, we had a Bible study, kind of like this. And the guys that did the announcements were like, hey, if Austin Duncan sent you a text message, ignore it. He just got his wisdom teeth pulled out. Then he got gassed really hard. So ignore anything that, that he sends you. So I was like, all right, so I don't have to take this seriously. And then like, after that Bible study, I asked them, like, funny, so I don't have to go to UCLA, right? And then they're like, no, no, that's for real. You actually do have to go. And, um, and I you know, prayed about it, and I went. And uh, during our very first uh, UCLA outreach event. It was called the Fall Barbecue. I couldn't find the location, and uh, that's and my wife was there. She was just walking, my God's sovereign hand was walking towards it, and it was like, "Help me, lady! I'm lost. Save me!" It was like a metaphor for my singleness as well. So it was just say, men, men take note, okay? Yeah. Yeah, listen to your elders and go to the wilderness and find your wife. <laughs> and a year after that's when I proposed to her. Okay. So. You guys were married. What was your engagement or marriage wedding date? September 25th of last year. September 25th. Okay, cool. So that's like seven months. Seven months. Seven months yeah. Seven. Yeah, good. Sounds good. Um, okay, uh, that's. I think that's all I had to ask you. Okay. Is there anything else you know, that you, need, you want to tell us about? Um, your deepest darkest secrets. Uh, no, you can hold that. No, okay. <laughs> Just tell us after the sermon. Yeah. After yeah. the sermon. Yeah. No, okay. Anyways, uh, but. That was just a brief get to know you a little about who he is, uh, kind of where he's back. Oh, by the way, what did you study uh, for your undergraduate? I was an English major. English major, okay, yes. All right, one dude. So yeah, he's a he's a creative guy, okay, writer, you know. So um, so we're bringing him on. He's going to start our blog, okay, official church blog. Now, uh, obviously, when we come when we look for pastors, uh, you know what we really are looking for is a shepherd, someone who will shepherd us. And one of the primary means of which shepherds shepherd uh, the flock is through the teaching and preaching of God's word. That's why uh, we've invited him to come and share God's word with us today. And uh, as you, uh, as we sit and hear God's word, may we be blessed and, and that you could even, that you would uh, be open, <laughs> obviously be open to what God has to say, but also just prayerfully hear what God's saying. Prayerfully pray for God's will that if the Lord wills that uh, we, you know, God may use Pastor Raymond to be feeding us, shepherding us in the years ahead. So with the Word of God. So uh, with that, I think that's it. I want to pray for him, pray for Kelly, pray for this weekend, and then we're going to have Lon start preaching the Word of God today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign hand in our lives. Thank you for how you orchestrate in uh, in life of individual us individually, but also how you orchestrate matters of. Uh, of your church 
we know, Lord, that it's by your sovereign will that you have brought uh, Pastor Raymond here this evening to speak to us from your word. Thank you, Lord, for the message that you've laid upon his heart to share with us. We pray that you would speak to us through your servant. Lord, we pray for your will that you would continue to reveal to us um, whom you would have us call to come alongside as our assistant pastor here, uh, assistant pastors here. We pray for your, the confirmation and your leading, and, and we just entrust uh, uh, your, this church to you. Lord, this is your church. Uh, you will lead it with whomever you wish. Um, and, but, Lord, we pray that uh, as you brought Pastor Raymond here, that, Lord, that he, that he may be the man whom you will for us. So we entrust this uh, decision to you, Father. We pray for him, that you would uh, use him to, to powerfully uh, preach and, and teach to us not only uh, your words, but, Father, exhort us, exhort us to, to live according to it. Father, we, we thank you that, um, uh, that you've also uh, just brought him as well as his wife here, to Kelly, with us today. We pray that this weekend for them uh, would... Uh, uh, not just feel like an, uh, maybe a, a, a nervous kind of interview, but Lord, that may it be also, uh, maybe even may it be instead, an encouraging time of fellowship with the saints. Father, may they be blessed by their time. May they see that uh, we our love for one another. May they see our, our love for for Christ, your, our Savior. And may they see our love for you. And may they be blessed uh, by the the time the, the times that they spend with us that they might leave uh, encouraged uh, to, uh, to love and, and to further good deeds. Father, we commit this time to you. Pray uh, for uh, this time and, and pray that you be glorified in all these things uh, and, and all that goes <laughs> happens this, the rest of this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So the pulpit's yours, brother. If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So you guys are turning there. I'd like to thank the elders of SFBC for considering me to be the assistant pastor here. I know it is a great burden, and it's not a process that they take lightly. Um, your elders love you, and they want to find someone that uh, will serve and help you grow and love the Lord more. Uh, so, I'm pr so my wife and I are excited. We're praying. We've been praying for you guys for the last few months, uh, trusting in the Lord that he will ultimately provide someone here to serve. Um, yeah, so we're just excited to be here. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to go, we're going to read from, we're going to study tonight chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Let's start by reading God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on the circular course, courses, the wind returns. All the river flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the river flow, 
there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things, which which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. There are two ways to learn in life. Two ways to learn. You either learn from your own experiences or you learn from other people's experiences. You learn from your own mistakes or you learn from other people's mistakes. You can either learn from personal experience or you learn from other people. If a person refuses to learn from their own experiences or from other people's experience, there's a term that the Bible has for the person like that. It's called a fool. In the book of Proverbs, you can see the contrast between the wise and the foolish. And oftentimes, the wise person is someone that listens to instructions, someone who takes to heart what God has to say. A fool is someone who knows what to do and don't do it. But really, a fool is a person who's, who has a failure, failure to learn in general. They refuse to learn what God has for them. And yes, Scripture tell, commands us to be wise. The book of Proverbs constantly tells us to, to seek wisdom to, to look to, and to learn so that we can be wise. And generally, a wise person learns from their own personal experiences as well as other people's experience. A wise person learns from their own mistakes so they don't make those mistakes again, or they learn from other people's mistakes so they don't fall into the same type of outcomes. But there are some lessons in life that's better that we learn from other people. There are some lessons in life that if we learn from it ourselves, it will have a catastrophic effect for the rest of our lives. There are some people who make mistakes in junior high whose effect of those actions are still affecting them to when they're old. And this is what Ecclesiastes is about. It's, it's, a, it's a book of, of wisdom uh, from one man who learned, who learned all of these, who made all these mistakes. He wants to teach this to his son. This book is filled with lessons because of one person's mistake. He wants to pass this knowledge on to someone else. This book is a book that is filled with warnings that the author wants the future to learn. And the greatest lesson, the theme of this entire book is this, that one cannot find meaning in life without God. A person cannot find meaning without God. If you try to find anything else, if you try to, if you try, if you try to find meaning in work, you try to find meaning in pleasures, you will be disappointed. Without God, everything is void of meaning. Without God, everything, everything is vain. I believe that Solomon is the author of this book. Uh, if you know about Solomon, he's done it all. Yet at the end of his life, in, in this book, he felt completely empty without God. This is really like an epilogue to his own life. Ecclesiastes 12.12 12 actually tells us who the audience is. Ecclesiastes 12, 12. But beyond this, my son, be warned. Solomon is writing this to his own son. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you know that Solomon's son is Rehoboam. And he failed to listen to his father's words. He failed to, to take the warnings that his father gave him. 
we, we, must be, we must not be like Rehoboam. This is here. It's divinely inspired for us to know uh, what God expects of us, and we must not ignore the warnings that are in this passage. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher. It's, similar, it's a similar opening to the Proverbs or the Songs of Solomon. It's basically a way to identify himself as the author. And this word preacher is kohelet in the Hebrew. Basically, it's just someone that is, is teaching God's word. Uh, some people have said that the book of Ecclesiastes is like a transcript of a sermon. And you can actually read through this book in about 45 minutes or so. So it could be the length of a sermon. This is like a transcript. It's, it's a transcript of, of this lecture or the sermon, or, this, or the, yeah, the sermon from Solomon. And he, but yet, lo, notice, he, he describes himself further. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And that, that really narrows down who the author is. He is, of, he is the son of David, means he is of royal bloodline. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David, saying that there, that there will be one person from his bloodline that will be king. And it narrows down some more. Notice the king in Jerusalem. In the entire time of Israel's reign, Israel, there's really three kings that were king in all of Israel, northern and southern tribe. It's Saul, David, and Solomon. And it cannot be Saul because, well, it says son of David, so that kind of removes him. It's not David because also it said son of David. Uh, so it has to be Solomon because Solomon is the only king that reigned when, there was, when it was a complete unified nation. Solomon is the only one that, uh, that reigned in, in this capacity. Everyone else afterwards was a split nation. It was a northern southern tribe. And it has to be Solomon. And David charged Solomon to be king in 1 Kings uh, chapter 2. And God visits him and grants him uh, one desire. And you guys know the story. He asked Solomon, what is it that you want? Whatever you want, I will give to you. And what Solomon asked for was that he wanted the ability to discern right and wrong so that he can lead God's people. He wants the ability to discern right and wrong. And God was pleased with that request, and he granted it to him. And Solomon brought Israel to the highest point in its entire history. You know, back when they were in the wilderness, God told them that if you were faithful to me, I will bless you. If, uh, the whole world will look to you and see that you guys are, are, are growing and there's so much prosperity, and they will know that you are, that, that Yahweh is the true God. And the only time the only time in the Israel history was when Solomon reigned. He brought Israel to the highest point and hasn't seen, has, has never been uh, like that since. And it won't be until Christ returns. Solomon built the temple of God in 1 Kings 8, verse 11, which really is the end of the Exodus for them. Uh, that uh, When Solomon finished the temple, the glory of God entered into the temple. And this is the first time where God was dwelling amongst his people in a permanent place instead of a tent. Solomon's reign showed us a glimpse of, the, of, the, of a promised land. And Israel, it basically showed the world what Israel was supposed to be. The whole, Israel was prosperous. They were rich beyond its wildest imaginations. But yet when we get to 1 Kings 11, we see the fall of Solomon. He fell due to his, due to his love for foreign women. He, he let go of God. He clung on to these, these foreign women and so when we get to the end, it's unknown what happens to Solomon. You know, even the worst king uh, in, in Israel history, Manasseh, is, it talks about how he actually repented. He actually, how he came to, uh, he realized his own sin, he confessed it, and he repented. 
but Solomon is not so clear, or it's not as clear. In, you, in Second Chronicles, it doesn't say. In First Kings, it doesn't say either. I think Ecclesiastes is that book that, that reveals to us where he was at at the end. Ecclesiastes shows us his life towards the end. And, and Solomon is a person who started out strong but ended horribly. Solomon, at this point in writing Ecclesiastes, is reflecting back at his own life, and he's asking himself, what is the point of all that I've done? All I've done and all that I've accomplished. All that he's done and all, the, all of his accomplishments were completely vanity because, there were, because God was not part of his life. It was not the central focus anymore. His greatest lesson is that everything in life is meaningless without God. Solomon had everything. He had wisdom, wealth, and woman, and they did not bring him lasting satisfaction. Solomon essentially wasted his own life. Now, I wonder if some of us here today are like that. I wonder if some of us here were taught at a young age to discern right and wrong and know what the Bible has to say and what the Bible has, commands us to do and what not to do. I wonder how many of us know God's word but yet do not apply it in our lives. A person with the greatest amount of wisdom does not mean that a person is immune to sin. Just because you have a lot of Bible knowledge, it means absolutely nothing if you do not apply it to your life. You can know a lot about God, yet still dishonor the Lord. Look how Solomon describes life, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This, word, this phrase, vanity of vanity, is used five times in the entire book. And the word vanity shows up 38 times in this entire book. And uh, this word vanity means, means vapor, means breath. It's something that just comes and goes. You can see it if you have hot coffee in a cold day. It just kind of just shows up and it disappears. It only goes probably this far and it's gone. That's how he describes life and the pleasures of in, the things that are in this world. It just comes and goes. Solomon uses this word to describe the vanity of life which should really remind us about what Solomon's trying to teach us. Solomon's trying to teach us, especially more particularly, he's trying to teach his son the greatest lesson. We, not to, we need to be not like Rehoboam, but we need to learn from Solomon's mistakes. He wants all, us all to know that you can find no significance in this world except God alone. You cannot find anything purposeful if God is not part of it. If you want to try to find meaning outside of God, Solomon is going to show us through nature and work, and he's going to show us how vain life is. And that's what our, we're going to go over tonight. Here's my proposition. Solomon is going to use nature and human achievement to show us the vanity of life so that we can turn from those things and fear the Lord. Solomon's going to use nature and human achievement to show us the vanity of life so that we can turn from these things, turn from the things of the world, and fear the Lord. Our first point, the, uh, nature testifies the vanity of life. We'll see that from verse 3 to 7. Nature testifies the vanity of life. Notice verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? This is the beginning of a poem. He asks a very simple question. What is there, what, can you, what, what type of advantage can a person do in his entire life. This word advantage basically means profit or gain or lasting value. What can a person do to have true and lasting value? This sums up, this, this shows up several times in this book. A person 
does something, he works hard, and then he dies. Again, this is not, let me just start by saying, this is not saying that there's no significance in the things of the, in, of the world. If you have a child, there is significance in that. If you get a promotion or a job, there, there's significance in that. If you retire, there's like significance in all the things that you do, but it does not have lasting significance. If you work so that you can only get money and that's all you care about, be prepared to be disappointed when money doesn't satisfy you. If you live life hoping to be in that perfect relationship with someone, be prepared to be disappointed when that person doesn't satisfy you completely. At some point, you will ask this question, what is the point of all of this? And if you do not have God, and if God is not the center of everything, then everything is meaningless. Notice this phrase, under the sun. This, this is it's basically saying every day. And I know some people are probably thinking, well, does that mean everything I do under the moon is going to be lasting? But no, that's not, the, that's not what it's saying. It was basically saying that everything you do, uh, in the, you know, back then they didn't have like, lights like we did, so they had to work in the daytime. That's why he uses the phrase under the sun. People had to work in the day. So this, this first verse here can be summarized or rephrased this way. What lasting profit can you truly get through life and all the work you have done in this entire life. And this is really the thesis of this portion. What is the point of all that you do in this life? What can you do in this life that can give you true and lasting gain? And there is nothing that you do in this life that can actually last as long as you hope. Everything a person does will be forgotten or destroyed. And Solomon is going to use nature to show us that. Solomon's going to use nature to parallel our lives and to show how, va- how vain everything is. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a gen- generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Solomon talks about, Solomon's saying that like, a generation of people comes, a generation of people are born, and then they go away. Each generation comes, eventually they will be forgotten. Uh, there's, you know, in, in American cultures, like the baby boomers, the XY, millennial, whatever, whatever. I bet you that you don't know at least maybe 10 people from each generation. Even like the famous people, you might, narrow, you might know like two or three of them. People in every generation, they will, they will eventually pass and you will, everything will be forgotten. Against the backdrop of a seemingly endless world, man's life is fleeting and short. The world will outlast us. It doesn't need us. Uh, I remember... A few months ago, I think, I, don't, I think in the Bay Area, it was, it was probably bigger here in the Bay than it was in Los Angeles, but you guys know about the cabin tree? You guys, no? No? You guys don't like going outside? No? Okay. <laughs> well, there's a tree in the Bay Area called the cabin tree, and it's, what's significant, it's, it's this huge tree with a hole in the middle, and people will drive their cars into it. You guys know, you've seen it in pictures, right? This huge tree. Well, it fell over in January, and it was like a devastation to people in the Bay, well, the people that care about nature in the Bay Area. It was like a celebrity dying or something. It was, it was, it was like, oh, Trump did this. And people were all sad. Like, because it happened in January. It's like, right when you get inaugurated, a tree falls, falls over. But they said this tree has been, it's been around for 2,000 years. It's been around, it's like a landmark in the Bay Area. It's been around for 2,000 years. And for the 2,000 years of its existence, millions and millions of people have come and watched and took pictures with this tree. But yet, but yet millions and millions of people have died. A generation is about 20 years. So this tree, this one tree, lived for 80 generations. 80 generations of people that have come 
into this earth and entered into eternity. This tree was around when Christ walked the earth. This tree was growing when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And this tree was still growing when Christ ascended. And this tree will not be around when Christ returns, but this tree (laughs) has been around for a long time. And that's just only one tree. And the evidence that nature will outlast us, if you look at the tree right next to the cabin tree, it's been around just as long, and it's going to outlast each and every one of us, unless it falls over. But generally speaking, these trees will outlast us. And Solomon is stating that the, this, Solomon is trying to show us the transitory of human life. It comes and goes, and yet nature will outlast all of us. People come and people go. Nature does not remember or care about us. Nature does not care when we come or when we go. And nature can outlast each and every single one of us. Solomon reigned for 44 years. And then during his 44 years, that's, again, that's about two generations of people. He saw generation, two generations of people come and two generations of people go. But yet he knows that people will not remember them. In fact, the only reason why we even know of Solomon is because God ordained it. He placed Solomon in Scripture so that we know who he is. If God, if it was not from, from if it's not from God's will and working through history and through Scripture, there's no way we would know about Solomon, right? I mean, even we have like historical records of presidents, but I bet you can't name all the presidents. I'm an English major, so I don't even know. So it's like, I just, it just shows like people don't care. After a while, people forget. Look at verse 5. Also the sun rises, also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens to its place. It rises there again. Solomon is saying, look at the sun. Look how it rises from the east and sets in the west. It rises and it sets. It rises and it sets. And this word hasten could, could be translated as panting. And it gives like a negative perspective of what the sun is doing. It's essentially saying the sun exhausts itself trying to get back to the same spot every single day. Uh, in high school, I did track and field. Uh, are there any track runners here? Do people at least know what track is? Okay, I saw a few hands. Cool. So I did the 100 and the 200. You guys know 100? 100 is like just going a straight line. 200 is like you go a curve and then a straight line. So I felt satisfied with my work, because I at least was going from point A to point B, or point A to point B. I felt bad for the, the distant runners, you know, the 400, the 800, the people that had to run like 16 laps, because they start here, and then they run, and they run, and they keep running, and they stop there. So all of their work brought them nowhere. Literally, they, they start at one point, and they end at the same, uh, same spot. That's the idea that Solomon is trying to paint here with the sun. The sun is, the sun is constantly going in the same pattern over and over again. It rises in the east, it sets in the west, and it just is constantly ex- exhausts itself, going in this endless cycle. No matter how much our lives change, things always seem to remain the same. The sun is a picture of this endless cycle, this monotonous nature of life. Look at verse 6. Blowing towards the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on a circular courses, the wind returns. Psalm continues with this imagery of nature by saying the, the wind blows over and over again. It's a metaphor to just show how, how this, 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 this constant cycle, you know, just, it's like this, this, the, the wind goes from north, goes to south, and then it's always oh, gone, and it comes back again, and it does it again and again and again. And again, this is, it is, is, Solomon is an amazing writer because he does this to juxtapose the east and west of the sun's movement by talking about the north and south of the wind's movement. 
Basically, no matter what nature does, it just constantly does the same thing over and over again. The endless cycle of nature shows how seemingly endless nature is and the futility of man. No matter how many people die, nature will just continue doing the same thing over and over again. In verse 7, we see this last illustration that Solomon uses. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To place where the river flow, they will, there they flow again. Uh, Solomon is talking about the, the basic, like the water cycle. River, river water goes into the ocean, ocean and water evaporates, and it goes down, and it happens again. This is this endless cycle. Everything remains the same. No matter how much water goes in the ocean, it doesn't get filled. Uh, no matter how much thing, no matter how much water goes in the ocean, it's, it's just it just constantly uh, goes in. It doesn't fill up. Um, and which, again, seems, again, shows the, the, mon- the monotonous cycle of life. Solomon does this to show how vain this world and this life is. It's like an endless cycle. Uh, it's temporary. This, this temporary, uh, this nature will point us to the eternal God. This, this, this monotonous cycle will make us fear this eternal God. Ecclesiastes 12.1 tells us to remember the creator of our youth. Nature attests to the constant cycle and our inability to find lasting joy in this world. And Solomon learned this the hard way. All of the things that he'd done, all of the temples, all of the buildings, everything that he's built in this time on earth eventually were destroyed. So why is Solomon doing this? It's more than just showing us that nature is indifferent to us. It's more than just to show us that we are like nature, just going through this constant cycle. But, that, but more importantly, that, but that nature of those in this constant cycle is waiting for our Savior to redeem everything. Romans 8, 20 to 22 reads this. For the creation was subjected to the futility. This word futility in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, that's the word for vanity. This word futility here, it's the same word. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Nature groans and anticipates the Lord's return. Now I wonder when we look at nature, when we see the monotonous cycle when we look at nature, do we think about the nature groaning for Christ to return? Now, if that is the case, if nature is truly groaning for the Savior to return, then shouldn't we be groaning as well? Shouldn't we be groaning even more than nature? Nature is waiting for the Lord to return, so shouldn't we be doing the same? Are you looking forward to the return of Christ? Do you delight in the creation more than you do the creator? Do you, do you find joy more in this world than the world that is to come? Nature should remind us that the world will be restored when Christ returns. Every, every beautiful thing that we see in nature is deteriorating because of sin. And some people worship nature and they forget that, yes, this, as, as beautiful as nature is, there's something one even more beautiful than that, and that is our God. 
And we need to anticipate Christ more than, we, more than nature anticipates the Lord. Christ will restore nature uh, once he returns, but Christ came and died not for nature, but he died, he did not die for the dust of the world, but rather he died for the dust that he made out of his own hand and breathed into. He died for all of us. He did not die for nature. So we should have a greater anticipation and a greater hope and desire for the Lord. Nature should remind us of the day when Christ will restore all things. Not only does nature show us the vanity of life so that we can fear and worship God, but our work will show how vain everything is so that we can fear the Lord, which is our second point. Work testifies to the vanity of life. So it will be, it'll be from verse 8 to 11. Work testifies to the vanity of life. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eyes, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. All of the work that we do in this life is tiresome. And Solomon begins to explain that all of things that human can achieve in this life is exhausting and it's fleeting. The one man's work will, will, will not last. Uh, even, again, even Solomon's work did not last. Solomon's saying that every act that is done under the sun is, is exhausting and, and, and to, all this exhaustion and toil, all of them will, will not last. We all work, right? All of us work to some extent, whether you are a student, whether you are working in a company, you work, or you, if you're working at home, you're working to some extent. And there is, in a sense, a exhaustion to it and a vanity to it. If you are a student, you know that your teacher has given this assignment before. And you know that you don't remember what the previous class has done. Even the teacher themselves don't remember what the previous class has done. If you're a part of a company, you do a project, and after a few years, there'll be a new project. Everything you do is constant, is exhausting, and is in a begrudging cycle. Solomon is saying if you try to find purpose in your work, you will be disappointed. Your work will be fruitless and completely vain. There will always be a new homework assignment. There will always be a new project. There will always be new goals and whatever it may be. And all of those achievements will be forgotten. Notice that Solomon writes, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Solomon is just trying to get at that. There's nothing that a person can hear that can give lasting satisfaction. There's nothing a person can see that can give them lasting satisfaction. There's nothing that a person can hear and can say, okay, I'm done with hearing. I've heard the best thing ever, and I don't have to listen to anything ever again. Or I've saw this one thing, whether, yeah, whatever it may be, then I don't, I don't have to see anything ever again. That's not the case. Everything that we do, well, there's always going to be a natural craving for more. Putting it all together, all that you do, all that you see, all that you hear is tiresome and can never provide lasting satisfaction. All that you do will ultimately have no meaning and, not, and it will be forgotten and it will never be remembered. Verse 9, that which, has, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so that there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing that has been accomplished is new, and whatever will be accomplished has been done before. Literally, nothing is new. That's what Solomon's trying to get at. Now, some of you guys are wondering, dude, man, there was no iPhones when Solomon was around. 
part of me was wants to say like, well, how do you know? You don't know. Like he's, he's saying that everything will be forgotten. But there wasn't iPhones. Don't worry. But some people are probably wondering that question. How can that be? Um, in a broad sense, there isn't anything new. I mean, matter, it's just really just a reassimilation of matter material, right? We know that matter cannot be created or destroyed, just altered. So in a really general sense, yes, nothing is new because it's just, it's just the created order reassembling itself. But in a specific sense, yeah, in some ways, even the, the, the things that we have now are just a variation of stuff that happened in the past. Like Twitter is, is basically just a message Right back then, they used to have a real bird. They'll tie a note to the bird and they'll send them away. And then, and then occasionally the bird will come back with a different note. That's like the original Twitter was sending a real bird. Uh, music, the same thing. Like there's not like a new type of music. You know, it's just music that's existed and people have just forgotten it. Um, in modern times, uh, my, my wife and I are, we, we like to go to different places like window shop. And we, I remember I saw this vinyl player. I was like, why is there a vinyl player here? We have iPhones. But yeah, that's a trend now. That's a new thing. People are now buying vinyls. And eventually there'll be like the little tape again and then CDs and then, then they'll go, oh look, a new MP3 player. Like it's, it's just this constant monotonous cycle. You know, there's, gonna, there's always gonna be something repeated. And that's what trends are. There's really nothing new. It's just a variation of what has, done in, what has, uh, has come before. This discovery, quote unquote, is really for us, but in reality, Things have always been there. Nothing is new under the sun. Look at verse 10. There is nothing of which one might say, see, this is it, is it new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. Solomon is asking the question out loud what everyone else is already thinking. Yet no matter how many seemingly new things there are, life remains the same. Things get thought of, they get theorized, they get tested, they get assembled. But in reality, over time, people will forget those things and they'll remake it again. People in the future may not know what has already existed or have, what has already been invented today. Solomon goes beyond about the invention but also talks about the pleasures of life. There is literally no pleasure that we experience now that's different from back then. Everything that we've experienced in terms of pleasure, it was already, it had already existing, existed. Nothing that man can create will give them a new or lasting pleasure. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Many people will try to exhaust themselves, to try to almost immortalize themselves to be remembered. Yet with hours and hours are poured in into trying to create something revolutionary, revolutionary, it will end up with them being forgotten. Things only seem new because people just don't remember. Solomon's highlighting the vanity of accomplishments and pleasures. What's the point in trying to be remembered when it only takes a few generations to forget all that you've done. Everything that has come will be forgotten. Solomon wants his son to know, and he wants his son to see that there is no such thing, there's no such work that will give some sort of lasting pleasure. There's no achievement that you can do that will last. 
The greatest work of men will not be remembered. No work or achievement uh, will be remembered. And nothing, uh, there will be no remembrance of things that has come before. The vanity of work, the tiredness of labor, and the exhaustion of occupation should remind us of the fall. You, you understand that the reason why work is hard is because it was part of the curse. In Genesis 3, God told Adam and Eve that because of your sin, you're going to have to work, and it's going to be hard. You're gonna, you, it's, it's no longer you can just pick fruit out of the tree, but you have to work for it. Uh, it's going to cause you to sweat. It is going to be exhausting. Pain is going to come with work. It is the curse of the fall. And the result of the fall is that work is going to be hard, and that work is going to be vain. It's going to disappear. The things that you try to achieve in this life will perish because of the effects of sin. The, 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 the effort, the exhaustion putting into those work, it should remind you of the fact that this is not normal. This is not work itself is not sin, but the exhaustion that comes from work is a result of the fall. Before the fall, work was painless. After the fall, work is hard and is temporal. The things that person makes, it will be destroyed because of corruption of sin. And someone has to build something new to replace it. Sin makes our work hard and destroys everything that we accomplish in this life. Every single day when we go to work, whether we go to class, whether we go to work, whether you're taking care of your children, that exhaustion that comes should remind you, should make you look forward to eternity where sin is removed and you can enjoy your labors without, any, without it perishing. Everything that you do now will perish. Nothing here will last. Our temporal work should remind us of the fall and should make us look forward to the eternal work of Christ. Now, I know some of you people here have not given your life to the Lord. I know some of you guys are trusting in your own works. And I don't mean just like your job or your school, but I also mean in your own good works. You cannot be saved and be made right with God if you're trusting in your own work. Because those work is vanity. It will perish, and you will perish with your work. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, I plead with you to turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. To look away from your sin and look away from your own self-righteousness and place your faith and look to Jesus and look at his work, look at his perfecting work in this life and on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he bore the wrath of our sin so that we could be made right with him. And, we, and if you trust in him, you trust that he died for your sins and he rose three days later, you will have everlasting life. And, we will, and if you are a believer, to you understand that your work, you have work in heaven. There will be a time in the future where you get to work. And those work will be everlasting. But you cannot get there unless you place your faith in the eternal work of Jesus Christ. So for those who are here tonight, may, may I hope to, to, to encourage you and remind you the vanity of nature Looking at nature, you see the vanity of life as well as the vanity of work in this life. May we not, when we tur- may we turn from the works of this world and turn from just the temporal and pleasures of this world and find our true delight in, and joy in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, thank you for this time we have to go over this passage. Lord, may you convict us um, and show us the temporalness of our life in the shortness of our life, and the things that we achieve. Lord, may we um, turn from our sins, and may we place our faith in you, 
but we ask you for your grace to, to, to always remind us of uh, what is to come and not to find our joy in this world or things of our achievement, but to look to you and find our greatest pleasure in what you've done on the cross for us. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. In your son's precious name, amen.